from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 116 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. So, Craig, you were at Disneyland this past week. Yes, I was. (laughs) And boy, what fun did I have. That's great. <laughs> and um, just uh, well, taking you backstage here, we uh, because both Craig, Craig was in Disneyland this week and I was traveling on business, we've recorded this like two weeks in advance. So yeah. we're, we're hoping everything's going well for everybody at this point. <laughs> so anyway. Oh, yeah, no, of course. So this is going to be a keeper, though. So you're get ready for this episode. Yeah, yeah. So, so we don't have any topical wit- witty banter, you know. Our, you know, by this time, um, even our usual announcements are all um, probably used up <laughs> by the time this show goes up. Everything's yeah. done. I will say we didn't we didn't talk about it in last week's show, so I can bring it up now. But and it kind of ties into what we're talking a little bit tonight. But uh, mm-hmm. we we've got a fun one for you with movies and such and. And there's still that that clawing wondering of what all is Disney Plus going to have? Is it going to have all the classics that we want? Is it going to carry everything that we mm-hmm. want all together? And you know, we know we know what we know some of the things that will be on there. It's as humans though, we have to constantly think about the what else and what if and and all of that with it. One of the interesting things that actually just saw the day we were recording is Disney Plus put out a, a tweet where they basically put out their preferred order for Saturday morning viewing. And they specifically mentioned like original DuckTales, uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and Tailspin, and I believe maybe Darkwing Duck was the other one. Uh, oh wow! But I mean, Disney Plus is tweeting about Disney Afternoon, and to me, it, it, are we supposed to take that as a sign that like Disney Afternoon shows are going to be on there? Because if they are, I think we can start getting our hopes up that one day Disney Plus will be as thorough as as we want it to be. That's yeah, fine. I think that's a great move. Yeah, because the you know the youngsters that grew up with Disney Afternoon are adults. Many of them with youngsters of their own. They're going to want to watch that. You know, yeah. with their with their kids, or they're just going to want to watch them because they enjoyed them in their youth. I I want to watch them. You know? I yeah. I own some of Ducktales on DVD, and I own everything that they released with Chippendale's Rescue Rangers on Mm -hmm. DVD, but they didn't finish it off. And when they didn't finish that off, I got nervous about buying any of the rest that I'd have these incomplete sets uh, without all the episodes. So if there's a chance that I have all of Disney Afternoon on Disney Plus, like 
you know, I was getting it anyways. But if that's another selling point on it, that Disney Afternoon will be on there on top of everything else they've promised, on top of the potential for classics that don't get enough recognition. Uh, this, uh, it, the more I think about the potential for, for this streaming service, the just the more goosebumps I get. With oh, it. I know. Oh, yeah. Like we have Tailspin on DVD, and I don't think they finished that out. Um, so we have all kinds of stuff. And yeah, I was thinking oh, it'd be wonderful if they had some of those old serials, like they had on the Mickey Mouse Club, like Gallagher, you know, and Spin and Marty, and and things like that. I would love those again. Um, out there, and remember some of the ones that were, they released on the Disney Treasures, you know, in the tins that were so limited that now when you go on eBay, they're hundreds of dollars. If they show those, that would be great. It, it'll really affect the eBay market. Yeah, it, it's all just. It's a wild west. Like we yeah. we kind of talked about after the Disney Plus panel on that D twenty three Expo. It's it's not just about. With Disney Plus, it's not just about like, oh, we have the chance now to explore these characters that that we didn't really bother with before and bringing them into a movie. There really is that aspect of Disney Plus, too, that I think someone that works for it has got to be talking about it and saying it. But there's all these specials and stuff that you decided never deserved a DVD release or they never decided mm-hmm. to be re-released on Blu-ray or you kept them behind a paywall behind like Disney Movie Club because you didn't you think you would sell enough of it and that's where that's literally where Disney Plus can thrive is by being a home for all of that content that just doesn't that just wasn't worth it for them to release in the beginning because it doesn't have to everything that they're they're giving me like even though they're saying like oh yeah you'll stream 4k with the basic service uh as long as the stuff is in 4k like i don't care if it really is dvd quality just to have some of the stuff that that hasn't been released or hasn't been released in forever and isn't great quality like i'm i'm okay with the sacrifice and quality just to know that i can sit down and watch it yeah me too i i have no problem if it's in if it's not sharp because it wasn't when it was presented so i'm fine with it wouldn't it be cool though to see the scarecrow of romney marsh again and all that well and it just it cuts down on the people who get around it by uploading episodes and and more to like youtube or pirating sites you know put it mm-hmm. I, I know the people who don't want to pay for it they still will look towards these other outlets in order to get their content but for the people who are willing to pay for it give them give them a treat yeah i agree yeah it'd be interesting to see what's going to happen to the disney channel yeah i mean it's i i think there's still definitely a place for disney channel because it's there, there are the people out there like like myself that just will never cut the cord. And I know when I get back from usually from trips and such, uh, when I turn on the TV in the bedroom for the first time, I will walk in and Disney Channel will be on because that's what Kylie actually puts on to fall asleep. The because there's they're always just fun happy shows. So not that mm-hmm. she knows anything about any of them and any of the characters. It's she just knows that there's not going to be any commercials that that scare her with with horror movie advertisements or anything <laughs> like that. So it's it's a safe channel to put on for her. So uh it's you know there's got to be more people out there who who 
embrace that and that will keep disney channel going for a little while longer at least yeah yeah it, it'll be interesting to see what they put on that channel compared to what they put on disney plus yeah it so. could be even stuff like okay well we'll show it first on disney channel for the people who have cable and then stream it to disney plus or vice versa if you pay yeah, for disney plus versa, then yeah, yeah it's uh, there there's definitely options to keep both mm-hmm. markets happy so yeah because that's how some of the streaming services work now. You know, you'll see it. Like, there was a, a show Carol watched called Good Wife that was a spinoff of another show. I think it's a mm-hmm, CBS mm-hmm. show. Yeah. And the, it showed on CBS All Access, and then, like, a year or two later, they started showing it on CBS. So, um, so that might be what they do is it's it's it starts on Disney Plus and then maybe a season or two later it moves over to the Disney Channel for the you know the preschool tween set. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, so. That wouldn't be bad. Yeah. No, I think it's great. That's exciting. I'm very happy to hear that. So, and we don't have much longer to wait because the, we're it's a downhill slide to all the holidays oh, right now. I'm and November 12th. I've my popcorn's already been made. It's going to be stale by the time we get it around to it, stale. but I'm okay with that. I <laughs> I'd rather be prepared. Right. Well, speaking of popping popcorn and movies and all and binge watching movies, on Monday, September second, twenty nineteen, Turner Classic Movies Treasures from the Disney Vault broadcast their last series of films for twenty nineteen. And Leonard Malton was he emphasized this is the last series of films for twenty nineteen. So it leads me to believe he thinks they might they're going to be back for 2020 so did he know. say that in the fun and fancy free intro he he said that um he said that a number of times that this would, these are the last series of films for 2019 and but he didn't say anything about coming back in 2020 um, but just hmm. the way he said it he didn't say so you know that's all folks okay see i wasn't able to watch live that night i can't remember where i was at but i i dvr'd a a lot of it and i dvr'd it all yeah i the (laughs) only one like i didn't dvr fun and fancy free because i already own that on Mm -hmm. on blu-ray so it can't be any better watching it on tv but i think i dvr'd the rest and i haven't like i a lot of the stuff was the ones later on in the night that he already checks out by that time that it rolls around. I mean, of course they're all taped, but mm-hmm. I think it's usually after like the, whatever the midnight thing is, that's when he says his goodbye. So I don't yeah. believe I've made it to anything before that time period with an why intro. Does he, why does he do that? Why doesn't he say anything about the films after midnight? I don't, I almost wonder if it's just some sort of market research that TCM has done that says like, okay, well at that time of night, people want to just like bounce right into it and so that's why they don't do intros because that's it's it's with everything and any entertainment block that they're doing once it gets to the 2 a.m 4 a.m one it's never introduced at all yeah because he said i'm because i recorded them all because i want to hear what he has to say about the films and even if I have them on, you know, Blu-ray or DVD. And yeah, he said, well, I'm leaving you now, but there's going to be more. <laughs> and I thought, well, do you even know the titles? And uh, and 
I thought, well, this makes no sense. Why don't you t- say something about them on your, you know, as, as you're putting on your coat? And but no, so I, I didn't get it. I, I I don't know. Maybe he's paid by the word. <laughs> <laughs> I I do. I mean, I I stand by what I said. We kind of we've yeah. talked about it every now and then. I'm I'm positive that it's if there's a way for Disney to still make money by licensing this material to TCM, then they're still going to take these other methods to do it. Because mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's why before Disney Plus, they they made this money by giving out their their content to other people by by giving usa the rights to the star wars films and all the different marvel movies to the different networks they were on it's just financially it's a great way to make money and for you know for the big stuff on disney plus it's disney's looking at their new movies they're looking at their their animated movies that that catalog the classics and they're looking at their originals um, that's that's what's important to them. So th- I don't believe deep down that anyone thinks that people are signing up solely to see old entertainment, which there is a great big group of us out there that are signing up solely hoping that there's all this classic material on there. But if, if they're convinced that people are signing up for the originals, for Star Wars, for Marvel, and for the Walt, the Walt Disney Animation Classics, then they're going to still license out this this other stuff to TCM especially when it's for one night and then 7 days on the app after that it's it's not like people are going to cancel Disney Plus to watch to, to watch um uh, a a broadcast of treasures from the Disney Vault yeah, no i think if anything it it would drive people to Disney Plus you know again it would be a thing where they're already on Disney Plus and um you know maybe they'll sh- they show them on Turner Classic Movies or vice versa it, it, it'll be the same way like when Leonard Maltin does his I, I don't know where he did his intros this time around but like you know he's multiple times he's done his intros recorded them at the Walt Disney Family Museum and was able to do a nice plug for you know you can experience more of the history of Walt Disney at the Walt mm-hmm. Disney Family Museum museum if there's a way for disney to say and you can you know you can see more of these classics by signing up for disney plus they will find a way to take advantage of that maybe he'll be in their control room because he he was on his alistair's uh, um oh who's that guy who used to introduce masterpiece theater alistair's i want to say sims but that's who it was um Gosh, that's terrible. I don't remember, even though he's been dead for a while. I thought Alistair Sims was the one who was like into demonology or something. He was he was Scrooge. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, never mind. But um, anyway, but um, anyway, yeah, he was in in you know in his big stuffed easy chair and you know on a set somewhere. Oh, I know so. exactly. Yeah, I can yeah. picture picture it perfectly. Yeah. So anyway. Anyway, all right. Well, due to the D23 Expo and other commitments, we were not able to have our traditional discussion of the films prior to their broadcast. However, because so many of these films are favorites of Disney fans, and we had a lot of people saying, hey, we'd still want to hear about what you have to say about the films, even though they, they've already been shown, Craig and I still want to talk about them. So this month's theme, from what I could figure out, seems to be animation, cars, outdoor sports, and hijinks. So, because uh, that's, yeah, that's throwing Merlin Jones into that. You're, I think you're onto something there. You pretty much got it. Yeah. So, Craig, do you want to run through the lineup of what they showed? 
Yes, I can absolutely do that. Uh, it started off at 8 o'clock p.m. with Fun and Fancy Free from 1947 that you might remember from our trivia episode last week. <laughs> yes. uh, at 9.30, this was very interesting just because of how, when I saw how the DVR recorded, at 9.30, it was Donald's Tire Trouble from 1943, uh, animated short that literally ran right into the love bug right mm-hmm. after that. So there you go, your car theme, uh, just keeping right intact. So, and the love bug st- is from 1969, not not the Lindsay Lan- Lohan classic, uh, Herbie Fully no. Loaded, for all those people who wanted that one. At 11.45, we had The Happiest Millionaire from 1967, which that was the last Walt live action movie, right? Correct. Yes. And Mm -hmm. so definitely nice to finally see it pop up on Treasures from the Disney Vault. Uh, 2.45 a.m., just very similar. I I think this one was very similar to how they handled Donald's tire trouble. Uh, We started out with The Art of Skiing from 1941, a great goofy short and that was at 2.45 a.m., and that rolled right into the Snowball Express from 1972, keeping keeping themes. And mm-hmm. at 4.45 a.m., he had the Hockey Champ from 1939, and then that closed out the night with the misadventures of Merlin Jones right. from 1964. Right. Sorry. <laughs> right. And that, that one is just sort of out there, but um, mm-hmm. it's the hijinks part. So anyway, so Craig, have you? How many of these films have you um, seen? I made it through about half of Merlin Jones, okay. but I fell asleep. So <laughs> uh, the shorts, obviously, I've I've seen them all, mm-hmm. and I just got through. I started it last night. I made it about an hour through Snowball Express. So oh, good for you. <laughs> yeah. But I I have seen of course Happiest Millionaire before yeah. and Love Bug and Fun and Fancy Free. So that's like I was saying in the the intro there and talking about the Leonard Malton parts. Uh mm-hmm. the they were no longer on on the last couple ones there at the end. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen all of these. I saw uh, some because I own some I remember when they came out. And I saw them, uh, probably almost all of these, all the films I saw when they came out, except for Fun and Fancy Free, um, in their first run in theaters. Happiest Millionaire, I remember seeing it in its entirety for the first time when it was on the Disney Channel. And when the Disney Channel, you know, showed good things. And... um, but it was fun seeing them all again. You know, I'm st- so I'm still plowing through them all, rewatching them and all that. So yeah, yeah, it's fun. So so the Labor Day presentation began with the 1947 package film Fun and Fancy Free, and most folks have probably seen the alternate versions of this, with it being re-edited and with narration by Sterling Holloway replacing the live-action sequences with Edgar Bergen. Um, Fun Fancy Free was also re-released with Jiminy Cricket and his sidekick Beetle named Herman, replacing the Edgar Bergen sequences. And it was most recently released with Ludwig von Drake as the narrator. There's even a version out there with Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop narrating. So this has what? been... Re- re- yeah, this has been repackaged and re-released many times in as a whole, in parts. You know, so um, there's all kinds of versions you might have seen of this. Yeah. It was, uh, the first time I saw the Edgar Bergen, uh, the, the one that was shown 
uh, on Treasures from the Disney Vault, the right one, the first time I saw it was on Blu-ray when Mm -hmm. I bought it and, you know, put it in. And I was like, what in the world is this? This is nothing like the VHS tape I had of this way back in the day. So, but I I love it. I, I think it's... It's perfect. I can understand the editing that they've done to to definitely they could they could make it more child friendly in a lot of ways by mm-hmm. by the edits that were made with it. But it's it is it's fun. Yeah, and and over time, I think um, generations sort of forgot about Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy, and Mortimer Snurd, so they made it more you know more relevant to you know other yeah, generations. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1947, the Walt Disney Studio was in trouble. Uh, due to World War II, the studio had lost its momentum and was seriously in debt and on the verge of insolvency. Um, Walt had to release features quickly. You know, he had to get his animators used to releasing animation for entertainment again and to bring revenue to the studio. Um, because the studio could not afford to make a fe- feature-length film at this time, Walt decided to combine animated shorts into feature-length package features. Um, Unlike the previous package films released by the studio, Fun and Fancy Free is made up of only two shorts with longer run times and features the studio's stars, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy. The cast includes Edgar Bergen as himself um, and his marionettes, Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd. As I, if you were listening to last week's episode in the This Week in Disney History, I mentioned that Edgar Bergen was an extremely popular performer in this era. He had his own radio show. Uh, television wasn't in everybody's household at this time, but he was well known in the radio. Um, and, and so were his puppets. And it was the humor that really brought uh, was his popularity. Um, Charlie McCarthy was, we would say today, snarky and um, had an edge to him. And so that's what drew audiences to that. If, if, I, if, you, if there are any stations that like Sirius Radio as a classic radio channel, um, once in a while the Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy show pops up. If, if you come across it, listen to it. It's still rather entertaining. So, Luana Patton, who, of course, had been in Song of the South and So Dear to My Heart, portrays herself. Cliff Edwards is the voice of Jiminy Cricket. Walt Disney is Mickey Mouse. Um, Clarence Nash as Donald Duck. Pinto Kovig is Goofy. Billy Gilbert was Willie the Giant. Anita Gordon is the Golden Harp. Dinah Shore was the singer and narrator of Bongo. Jimmy McDonald was um, Bongo the Bear and also um, did the growls for Lumpjaw. He also did some of the voice work for Mickey Mouse and what wasn't available in this um, in this um, show. Um, the directing animators, Walt Ward Kimball did the Bongo segment, and when Bongo meets um, Lumpjaw, uh, Les Clark was the animation supervisor for Bongo. John Lounsbury did Willie the Giant. Freddie Moore uh, did the scene where Bongo meets um, Lulabelle, and he animated Mickey Mouse. Wolfgang Reitherman, Willie Reitherman, um, animated Goofy, Mickey and Donald, and the starvation sequence. And Art Babbitt um, animated Bongo. 
Now, Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio is the host, and he sings the title song, I'm a Happy-Go-Lucky Fellow, or sometimes it's referred to as um, Fun and Fancy Free. And that was a song that was actually cut from Pinocchio, but, you know, Walt wouldn't let leave a lot. Sometimes he didn't leave things on the cutting room floor. So he was known to reuse songs that didn't make it in from one feature. He would have it put in another feature. Uh, and that's the case here. Um, both of the shorts in Fun and Fancy Free were originally conceived as feature films. Bongo, about a unicycle riding circus bear, was originally planned to be a spin-off of Dumbo. And some of the characters from Dumbo were going to be in the Bongo spin-off. Uh, Mickey and the Beanstalk had been in the story stage at the studio since 1940. And Walton listed two major stars at the time to narrate each segment. Dinah Shore was an extremely popular singer at the time. She was like the female crooner um, of this era. She narrates Bongo. Um, she also sang the song Two Silhouettes in the previous package feature, Make Mine Music, if you've ever seen that. Ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his two dummies, uh, Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd, narrate Mickey and the Beanstalk. And there are some live-action animation sort of combo sequences um, in, in this as well. So the film opens a Jiminy Cricket riding a leaf like a canoe in what appears to be a lily pond as he sings the fun and fancy free opening number. It's then revealed that the lily pond is actually an elaborate planter in a house. And he hops to a bookshelf and jumps down to find Cleo the goldfish in her bowl. Why they're not in... um, no explanations given to why Jiminy and Cleo have left Geppetto's workshop, but apparently Figaro's still at Geppetto because the cat that chases Jiminy into the playroom in the house is not Figaro. Jiminy sees a doll and teddy bear looking sadly at each other, so he puts on a record called Bongo, sung by Dinah Shore to cheer them up, which introduces the first segment. Bongo the Bear is the star of the circus with a speciality for unicycle riding, and he's much more comfortable on his unicycle than he is on his feet. But Bongo keeps dreaming of life outside of the circus in the wild. He escapes from the circus and is quickly shown around the forest by a group of forest animals drawn in, you know, the familiar Disney style. But Bongo's first night in the forest doesn't go well, and the next morning is rough, until he meets a pretty little girl bear named Lulabelle. Lockjaw, though, is a big brute of a bear, and he also has his sights on Lulabelle. And when she slaps Bongo, he thinks she has turned against him. She tries to slap him again, but accidentally slaps Lockjaw. Well, It turns out that when bears are in love, they say it with a slap, as the song goes. So Lulabelle is now stuck with a lockjaw. Bongo tries to steal Lulabelle back by fighting Lockjaw. And against the odds, Bongo beats Lockjaw, slaps Lulabelle, and they live happily ever after. So we go back to Jiminy in the playroom and see the doll and teddy bear smiling at each other. The record has started to skip, so Jiminy stops it and hops up on the table where a party invitation is addressed to to Luana Patton, the female child star from Song of the South, 
It is from Charlie McCarthy, Mortimer Snurd, and Edgar Bergen. So Jiminy hops out the window and heads to the house across the street where Edgar Bergen lives. At the party, Bergen tells the story of Mickey and the Beanstalk as it transitions into the second story. And Jiminy is careful to stay out of sight as he enjoys the story, and we're left to wonder why they would just invite one little girl to their house for a party. Mickey, Donald, and Goofy live in Happy Valley as farmers, but all of the happiness disappears when the magic sinking harp is stolen by a giant shadow. The three farmers are left in poverty, and when Mickey goes out to sell their last cow, he comes home with magic beans instead of money. Donald throws the beans through a crack in the floor in a fit of anger, but during the night, the beans grow into a giant beanstalk, carrying the house to the top whilst they sleep. Upon waking up, they find a not-too-bright giant who can transform into anything, and it turns out that he is the one who stole the singing harp. So Mickey and the gang attempt to rescue her and get her back to Happy Valley. The giant catches them and chases them down the beanstalk, but they cut it down, causing him to fall to his doom. They return to Harp, and happiness is restored to Happy Valley. As Edgar Bergen finishes the story, Mortimer is beside himself about the giant's death. And Bergen explains that the giant wasn't real, but then the giant rips the roof off and pokes his head in to ask if anybody has seen a mouse. The film ends with the giant roaming around Hollywood looking for Mickey Mouse. He steps over Groman's Chinese Theater and ends up wearing the Brown Derby restaurant as a hat on his head. Well, and if he wouldn't have shown back up for that, at least we would have got him later in Mickey's Christmas Carol. That's so. true. That's true. So we knew that he's, you know, he fared yeah. well. There was redemption so. for him. Yeah, yeah. So it, do you enjoy Fun and Fancy Free? I think you said you really liked it. Earlier in the show. Yeah, again, I grew up with the edited version that I had on VHS that was, you know, basically uh, just nothing with the live action portions and, you know, primarily watched it for, um, for, for Mickey and the Beanstalk, but I, it's it, it, I think as a whole it's perfect and it very much like like all of the package films they're not for everyone but I, I think there's still a lot to be enjoyed in them and I, I like both segments so yeah. I do too I, for me out of the two segments Bongo is the weakest um, it it is based on a story by Sinclair Lewis that he wrote for the for Cosmopolitan magazine, and much of the segment features Bongo, you know, wandering around the forest, and the songs are designed to set the mood, um, you know. So it's for me, it just sort of went on for a while, um, but. The animation in this segment, especially the backgrounds, are lush. I mean, they're beautiful. And here's a little bonus. If you haven't watched it yet or want to rewatch it, look for early versions of Chip and Dale in this segment. Uh, and Because they are, they're going to make their short subject debut around the same time. Now, although Mickey and the Beanstalk isn't on the same level of animation as the previous Mickey Mouse shorts, the artistry of the characters in the oversized world of Willie the Giant, it has beautiful layouts and backgrounds. And there are some great gags in this segment. 
uh, some that would be repeated in other um, other cartoon shorts in some fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. there are there are a few deleted scenes. Uh, there was a scene in which Mickey took the cow to market, where he meets Honest John and Gideon from Pinocchio. But those Pinocchio characters sort of migrated over, and and they're the ones who con him into trading his cow for the magic beans. Another version had a scene where Mickey gave the cow to the queen, who's played by Minnie Mouse, as a gift. And in return, she gave him the magic beans. However, both scenes were cut when the story was trimmed for fun and fancy free. And so the film doesn't explain how Mickey got the beans. Now, in earlier drafts, Bongo had a chimpanzee as a friend and partner in his circus act. She was first called Beverly, then Chimpy, but the character was dropped when condensing the story. Uh, Bongo and Chimpy also discovered two mischievous bear cubs who were also dropped. Originally, the designs for the characters are more realistic, but when paired for fun and fancy free, the designs were simplified and drawn more cartoony. And the script was nearly completed by December 8, 1941, the day after the attack on Pearl Harbor. So the popular ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his puppets, Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snord, were then best known for their work on radio. And they were hired by Walt Disney in part to appease RKO Pictures. They were the distributors for this Walt Disney Studio at the time. And they were not enthusiastic about fun and fancy free. Um, Bergen would narrate the short with asides from the puppets and occasionally Disney star um, Luana Patton. But the real draw would not be Bergen's voice, but rather an early opportunity for moviegoers to see Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy on screen together. The popular Charlie McCarthy television show wouldn't air until 1949, two years after the release of Fun and Fancy Free. Despite the presence of Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy, Donald Duck, and Mickey Mouse, Fun and Fancy Free was yet another box office disappointment for the Walt Disney Studios. Worse, the two sections were too long to be easily repackaged into separate cartoon shorts and resold, though the shorts were later shown on television. Um, by the end of its theatrical run, the film had grossed $3,165,000 in worldwide rentals, with $2,040,000 being generated in the United States and Canada. Now, Walt Disney had provided the voice for Mickey Mouse since his debut in 1928, and Fun and Fancy Free was the last time he would voice the role regularly, as he no longer had the time nor energy to do so. Walt recorded most of Mickey's dialogue in the spring and summer of 1941. Um, Sound effects artist Jimmy McDonald would become the character's new voice actor starting in 1948. And there's still some, you know, there's a bit of a legacy still living on with Fun and Fancy Free. Sir Mickey's in Fantasyland at the Magic Kingdom is themed after the Mickey and the Beanstalk short. And you'll even be able to catch the giant if you look close enough. So, 
And Disney historian and author J.B. Kaufman just published a new book, The Making of Walt Disney's Fun and Fancy Free. And I purchased it at the D23 Expo. I've not had a chance to, to read it yet, but I'm looking forward to doing it. He even autographed it for me. So. Yeah. I, I didn't see it that at the Expo, but I saw it pop up on my Amazon and recommended mm-hmm. just uh, just very recently. And that that has me intrigued. I wish well, I didn't need to come home with any more. I already spent way too much, but uh, it's it's definitely going on my wish list. So mm-hmm. it's a nice little book and uh, lots and lots of um, storyboard art and animation. But um, there's a remarkable amount of um, history in that little short. So I'm yeah. looking forward to finding out what J.B. Kaufman, who's a great. I've heard him speak several times. Yeah, he's terrific, and he um, said he'd be on the show. Oh, that is awesome! Because I yes. know, I know he's had his hand in a lot of the stuff that we we've you know we've <clears throat> talked about on this show before too. It's mm-hmm. it's it comes up very often. You might recognize his name from when Michael is going through and and reading the sources that he's pulling some of the stuff from. I mean, uh, it's. It, what he did the south of the border book he did one on pinocchio one on snow white he didn't mm-hmm. he co-write the uh the toshin the mickey mouse book yes and, he did mm-hmm. and there was he one was, other one you will he always was in the, he was in the toshin booth uh, he's oh, okay. he's done one on storyboarding uh he's done all kinds yeah he's i have all his books so um yeah, yeah very done. very talented yeah he's also there's um Gosh, I forget what the name of it is that he's involved with it. The Animation um, History Institute or something. And they, they've started to publish annuals, mm. and he writes for them. I purchased their first annual last year, or earlier this year. And it's really good. It's just a bunch of um, lengthy articles on different aspects of Disney animation history. Huh. So. And and it, it's easy. It, it's not large, so it's it's yeah. very readable. Very cool. Yeah. Um, anyway, so next up, uh, Donald Duck goes for a drive and is his usual own worst enemy in a 1943 animated short, Donald's Tire Trouble. And I didn't find a lot of background information on this. I don't have a lot in my library about yeah. Donald. Well, it's also a very easy, a very easygoing short in terms yeah. of the context. Yeah. There's not a lot to it. Yeah. But while speeding on the road, Donald Duck runs over a nail on a horseshoe, causing it to pop his tire, and he has to replace it with the car's heavily patched spare. He encounters difficulty lifting the car with his jack, uh, with removing the damaged tire, with repairing it with another patch. Uh, He just has trouble all along. Uh, The hilarious difficulty Donald has at changing his tire is caused mostly by his own anger and impatience. Unfortunately for him, him after donald miraculously succeeds in his task all four tires immediately pop once he resumes driving and he rants out retreads and he you know he blows a fuse again but he continues his trip undaunted on four flats i guess he doesn't have any rims so i don't know yeah uh, <laughs> so this is a, a this was a, a commentary on wartime rationing and the rubber shortage during World War II and Donald admits as much himself when he examines the well-worn tubes and gripes doggone rubber shortage 
So uh, Donald Duck is voiced by Clarence Ducky Nash. The director was Dick Lundy, and and it was produced by Walt Disney. Now, Donald's Tire Troubles released just days after the studio's release of the dark and disturbing Education for Death, wartime propaganda film. So the lighthearted antics of Donald Duck came as a welcome relief to audiences, despite it pretty much being a one-note joke, though it had some really good gags in it. If you're a fan of Donald Duck and his antics and his temper, you're going to enjoy this. Yeah, I so I I love Donald. Donald's probably my favorite when it comes to the you know, the the Fab 5 and if and this was actually hard for me to get through cuz I'm like there is no possible way that this can keep going on for 8 minutes and he is but having it did. this much problem. <laughs> it exactly, did. it did and it kept going and it kept going and he I just, was like uh, it's it, one of the more it, frustrating it, it, ones. That, that he just yeah, he just couldn't get anything right because he just kept losing his temper. Yeah, and, you know. And, and again, these are gags that we'll see again in various versions with you know other different implements. But um, I don't know. It, it was still amusing. Yeah, it's it's amusing. I, like this is this is one that if if like for all the amazing shorts that they cut down when they did the Have a Laugh series. Like, this is one where I'd be like, okay, I can see why they cut it down. But then to do it to something like Lonesome Ghosts that doesn't yeah. need cut down at all, that that's where I'm like, okay, there's some there's some random stuff happening here. But I digress. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And I I think they've abandoned that initiative. Oh, they? yeah. No, that, that was a long time ago. But then yeah. it, it drives me nuts every time I still see it pop up on, mm-hmm. like... When, when Disney, sometimes, I mean, D23 is great with their social media and like, oh, there's we want to celebrate a short that's celebrating an anniversary or just important to the time of year it is. They'll show a, a, usually a, a remastered or just a really great looking copy of that short and show it in its full length entirety. But then every now and then, like if it's like the Mickey Mouse Facebook page posts a short from a classic one, it's like always the have a laugh series i'm like stop bringing that up go back to the originals they exist i have a feeling those are going to appear on disney plus so don't you dare say it as fillers i just know it they were they do on the disney channel well that's fillers and they they are on i don't know if the app works anymore i haven't tried it in years but they had like it's a separate mickey app at one point in time and pretty much it was exclusively have a laugh oh i had that app but i didn't watch it just just bad it was a way for them to promote the new mickey shorts and then throw in some old ones and the old ones were cut down versions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but sorry sorry for that tangent it's fine well the evening continues with the story of everyone's favorite volkswagen the love bug from 1969 and no one at the walt disney studio was prepared for the popularity of this film it became the biggest box office hit of 1969 and the second largest grossing film in disney history at the time right after mary poppins when actor dean jones brought walt disney a script in the mid-1960s about the first sports car in in you know america that he was interested in making walt told him he had a better car story for him the story that walt had in mind was boy girl uh, boy car girl by gordon buford 
After Walt's passing, a committee was formed that would pick projects based on what Walt might have done, and Bill Walsh adapted Boy Car Girl into what would become The Love Bug. The film begins with a drag race as the credits play, and one of the losers, a down-on-his-luck race car driver, Jim Douglas, heads home defeated to find his rather eccentric roommate, Tennessee, making a sculpture out of his wrecked car parts. Whilst shopping for an affordable new car, he sees a pretty young lady named Carol Bennett and walks into the upscale dealership owned by Peter Thorndike. After Thorndike realizes Douglas is simply window shopping, he shows him the door, but a Volkswagen Beetle rolls in from the back and bumps him in the leg. The little car follows Jim Douglas home, causing him to be arrested for allegedly stealing the car. Carol negotiates a deal that if Jim will pay for the car, Thorndike won't press any charges. On his drive home, the little car forces him off the freeway and hides under a bridge. Jim takes it back to return it, and Carol joins him for a drive to test drive the little car to determine that it is running properly. When they start to argue, the car starts driving itself and takes them to a drive-in, where it locks them in a car and forces them on a date. When Carol offers to refund Jim for the car, he decides to keep it after seeing how fast it can go. Tennessee believes the car has a spirit and is alive, but Jim thinks the idea is silly and does some work on the car to get it ready to race. After Jim wins his first race, Thorndike offers to buy the little car back. Carol suggests a deal where Thorndike will bet the remaining payments Jim owes against Jim's share of the car. Whichever driver wins gets to keep it. Meanwhile, Tennessee has named the car Herbie, and Jim believes that his driving is what is winning the races. After buying a real race car with the winnings from the races, Jim agrees to sell Herbie to Thorndike, causing the depressed little car to run away and attempt to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. Jim tries to stop him and almost falls, causing Herbie to back up and save him. On the drive, Herbie destroyed the front of a Chinese market, and the owner, Mr. Wu, wants the car as payment. Jim makes a deal where the car belongs to him, but Jim gets to drive him in the next race. If Jim wins, the man gets the money and has to sell Herbie back for $1. During the race, Thorndike tries to sabotage Jim by replacing their gas with water and spraying motor oil on the road. Herbie is able to overcome these hurdles, and with some amazing tricks, despite breaking apart in two, Herbie wins the race and stays with Jim. Mr. Wu had made a side deal with Thorndike to get the car from him if Jim lost the race, but in the fine print of the contract, Thorndike had to hand over his dealership if they lost. The film ends with Carol and Jim getting in a restored Herbie to take them off on their honeymoon. So, this uh, this was just a delightful little film. I love The Love Bug. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it, it's an absolute it's an absolute classic, and it's uh, you know many sequels to follow as well mm-hmm. too. But it's it's totally understandable how it was able to do that so there's it's it it is classic disney 
So it, especially at that time period where you never knew what was what could quite happen with Disney movies. You were you were hoping for the best, but it's this was one that just I, I feel like delivered. And you know, it's the, the, there have been bad moments with Herbie, and like I already <laughs> made the joke about the Lindsay Lohan version that came way later. Uh, mm-hmm. It's for the most part, Herbie movies are just fun, and yeah. I. I always enjoy watching them, so it's it, it was nice that hopefully a, a new a new uh, generation of people got to experience the love bug for the first time, and they'll get to see more of it on Disney Plus in the future. I hope so. Yeah, I remember when I first saw this. Me and my pals, we would um, we would have a contest to see who could spot the most white Volkswagen bugs. <laughs> driving around San Francisco. That's great. This is a fun film for me too because it was great seeing San Francisco of the 60s again. Although some yeah, of it was yeah. clearly filmed in Southern California and other places. Yeah, I mean but, cheaper. Yeah, yeah, but they they used the streets of San Francisco for quite a few of the scenes uh, and I recognized where they were. Now, as was customary for Disney films of this era, most of the performers were well-known character actors from television and film. Uh, several regularly appeared in Disney films. Uh, so Dean Jones uh, was as Jim Douglas. And if you remember the drive-in scene with the hippies in the car next to him, the, um, Jim play- Dean Jones played one of those as well. Uh, Michelle Lee was Carol Bennett. David Thomason, our Mr. Banks from Mary Poppins. He was Peter Thorndike, the villain. Buddy Hackett was Tennessee Steinmetz. Joe Flynn was um, Haversha. Benson Fong portrayed Tang Wu. Joe E. Ross was the detective. Barry Kelly was a police sergeant. Iris Adrian was the car hop. She'd go on to star in several Disney films of this era. Well, not star, but be in several Disney films. Um, Gary Owens portrayed himself as an announcer. Jimmy McDonald did the vocal effects of Herbie. Now, Andy Granatelli, who was popular at the time as a presence at the Indianapolis 500, as well as the spokesman for STP, appears as himself as the Racing Association president. Announcer Gary Owens of Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In fame, that was a television show, kids, and reporter Chick Hearn also appears themselves. The driving scenes were choreographed by veteran stuntman Carrie Lofton. The studio's top director, Robert Stevenson, was assigned as director, and Dean Jones was attached to the film from its inception, but the toughest casting choice was the car itself. They had a casting call that included a Toyota, a Fiat, Volvo, MG, and a Volkswagen. The VW Beetle got the role because studio employees that passed by it would pet it. Uh, And so because it elicited... An emotional response like that from people that they selected the Volkswagen. Um, Carboy Girl, the Magic Voxy, the Runaway Wagon, Beetle Bomb, Wonder Beetle, Bug Boom, and Thunderbug were amongst the original development titles considered for the film before the title was finalized as The Love Bug. It's Thunderbug. I like that. One. Yeah, that's a good Sounds one. Sounds like it could have been a cartoon series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the good. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. 
The Volkswagen brand name and logo or shield are not featured in the film because the automaker did not permit Disney to use the name. Little did they know how popular this film was going to be. They probably would have reconsidered. The logos can be seen briefly in at least two places, however. The first instance is on the brake pedals in the first scene, where Herbie takes control with Jim inside on the freeway when Herbie runs into Thorndike's Rolls Royce. And it is shown in all the future scenes when Jim is braking. The second instance is on the ignition key when Jim tries to shut down the braking Herbie. The later sequels do promote the Volkswagen name because the sales of the Beatles were down when the sequels were produced. Uh, The VW Wolfsburg Castle emblem on the steering wheel hub is also seen throughout the car's interior shots. Within this script, the car was only ever referred to as Herbie, the little car, or the bug. The latter, although a common nickname for the Beetle, was not trademarked by Volkswagen at the time of filming. Herbie's trademark 53 racing number was chosen by producer Bill Walsh, who was a fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball player Don Drysdale. Drysdale's jersey number, later retired by the team, was 53. In pre-production, Herbie was going to be red, but was switched to pearl white. Walt also gave Herbie his trademark red, white, and blue racing stripes, presumably for the more patriotic color, and he came up with the film's gags, such as Herbie squirting oil and opening the doors by himself. Buddy Hackett was cast when the film's producer, Bill Walsh, saw him performing in Las Vegas. The car was later given the name Herbie from one of Buddy Hackett's skits about a ski instructor named Klaus, who speaks with a German accent as he introduces his fellow ski instructors, who are named Hans, Fritz, Wilhelm, and Sandor. And at the end of the skit, Hackett would say, If you ain't got a hoibie, I ain't going. David Thomason returned to the studio as the villain after his memorable role as Mr. Banks and Mary Poppins. Joe Flynn makes his Disney debut and may be best remembered for his role in Snoops as in The Rescuers and Dean Higgins in a Dexter Riley series. Of course, we all remember him as Commander Binghamton in or Captain Binghamton in um the oh gosh in the um oh what was the series i can't think of it now anyway i'll think of it it was a series that had ernest borgnine in it and all that so Mm. yeah i'll think of it it was just in my head when i started to say it what type of series was it? it it was a world war ii tim conway was in it he was and it was it was a sort of a supposedly a parody of pt 109 so, uh, I'll th- it'll pop into my head. McHale's name. McHale's, that's McHale's a, name I was right it. there. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I know there was a submarine movie that they remade in the 90s based on the TV show from, from they did remake earlier. The, they did remake the McHale's Navy. Yes, and that movie was yeah. terrible. But. That was that was bad. <laughs> yeah. The opening scene of the Demolition Derby cars is footage from the 
film Fireball 500, and parts of the scene can also be found in the 1966 model year dealer promotional film by Chevrolet titled Impact 66. To portray Herbie's astounding ability to outdistance the big race cars, the 1963 Sunroof Model 1200 Volkswagen was given a powerful bus engine in some sequences. For other scenes, the bug was outfitted with a Porsche engine that could do 90 miles per hour in third gear and 115 in top. Herbie was further enhanced with Porsche brakes, Coney shocks, and wide base wheels with Indianapolis 500 type race tires. In all, 21 VW Beetles were used, each tricked out to perform different on screen special effects. For the race sequences, renowned Disney second unit Arthur, or director Arthur J. Vitarelli headed a 127-man crew filming race sequences at real tracks like the Grand Prix Raceway and Monterey Raceway. The second unit filming was completed first in fall of 1967 with principal photography following in 1968. Forty expert drivers were gathered by stunt driver Kerry Lofton, who oversaw the racing scenes. Some of the racetrack scenes were shot at the Riverside International Raceway in Riverside, California. Others were filmed at Laguna Seca Raceway in Monterey, California, Willow Springs Raceway in Willow Springs, California, at and Paramount Ranch in Agora Hills, California. Additional scenes depicting the El Dorado race were filmed near the San Bernardino Mountains in Big Bear City, California. The iconic scene with Herbie skipping across the pond was shot at Disney's Golden Oak Ranch. Herbie competes in the Monterey Grand Prix, which, except for 1963, was not a sports car race. The actual sports car race held at Monterey was the Monterey Sports Car Championships. The 1968 Monterey Grand Prix was in fact a Can-Am series race and did not feature production cars. For all you racing fans out there... Um, Peter Thorndike's Yellow Special is actually a 1965 Apollo GT, a rare sports car built in the United States by International Motor Cars in Oakland, California. It used an Italian-designed body along with a small-block Buick V8 engine, and the car exists today. It's in the hands of a private collector, and it has been restored as it is seen in the film with its yellow paint and number 14 logo. A handful of original Herbies still exist. Most are owned by collectors and have been restored to film quality. I I have a photo of myself posing with one in front of the Walt Disney Family Museum. Very nice. Yeah. The Lamborghini that Herbie destroys is not really a Lamborghini. Um, Jim Douglas is shown pulling up in a new Lamborghini 400 GT, but the car that is severely damaged by Herbie is actually a previously wrecked Jaguar E-Type. During one scene in the film, Herbie has lost one of his wheels, and Tennessee is hanging out of the passenger side door to balance him. The door opens, and there is no 53 logo on the door. And this image was used to promote the film, and actually in other um, other images to promote the film, Herbie's not even painted. So he's just a white VW. The Love Bug premiered at Radio City Music Hall on March 13, 1969, and had its Hollywood premiere on March 26th at Groman's Chinese Theater. Uh, 
where valet parking was exclusive to attendees at um, the who drove up in Volkswagens. All 1,500 guests, including such Disney favorites as Sebastian Cabot and Kurt Russell, as well as Lovebug stars Jones, Lee, Hackett, and Benson Fogg, were invited to wear California mod outfits. Following the screening, the star-studded audience was led to the Bug House, which is a nearby underground garage, for an underground party with wild psychedelic decor. As part of the film's promotion, Disneyland had a Love Bug Day on March 23, 1969, where guests would bring their decorated VW Beetles and they could win prizes for the best decorated. Um, they'd bring them to the park for a parade down Main Street, USA. So there are a few deleted scenes. Uh, the original opening, in, in the original script, the opening was originally going to have Herbie coming out fresh from the factory along with other VW Beetles. He would be the f- first scene coming down the conveyor belt backwards where the movie titles would appear and then lined up along other Beatles. Then there would be a line quoted by Dean Jones saying, For millions of cars, it happened that one was different than all the others. There was also a scene in a used car lot where Jim um, Douglas calls at a used car lot prior to his visit to Thorndike's auto showroom. This missing sequence has been lost, and all that remains is a script and a single black and white photograph of Jim talking with the salesman at the lot. There's also an unfilmed playground scene at the end of the story that was scripted and storyboarded. The original closing was to have shown Herbie playing with children at a nearby playground before taking the newly married Jim and Carol off on their honeymoon. That would have been a cute little scene to have in the film. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, Craig, the love bug inspired more follow-up projects than any other live-action Disney property at the time. Four direct sequels were made. Herbie Rides Again in 1974, Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo in 1977, Herbie Goes Bananas in 1980, and the, the, the cult classic Herbie Fully Loaded in 2005. <laughs> In 1982, Disney attempted a television series starring Gene Jones, Dean Jones, that only lasted five episodes on CBS. And this was called Herbie the Love Bug. I actually saw that. I didn't think it was too bad. But I was probably the only one watching it. <laughs> <laughs> In 1997, Disney made a television movie also called The Love Bug. It was a modern take on the story, loosely based on the original film, that also had a Dean Jones cameo. In 1999, Walt Disney opened the All-Star Movie Resort, and there is a homage there. Um, there's a Love Bug wing in 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 that resort. Hey, if, if there is, and who knows how long that'll last. So if you really want to stay there, stay there soon. <laughs> well, why? What's happening? I, I just could imagine that any day they kind of step back and like, why do we have a love bug wing here? How is that relevant anymore? And oh. just take it away like that. Yeah, that's true. But let's hope they keep it. Um, from 2005 to 2011, Herbie appeared in Disney's Hollywood Studios Lights Motor Action Extreme Stunt Show. And who knows, maybe Herbie will live again in Disney Plus. Maybe they'll resurrect him for another yeah. series. Yeah. 
it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it would it would make a lot of sense too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, or you know, maybe um, her Herbie fully loaded too, electric boogaloo. You know, you never know. <laughs> so, did you did you see all the sequels? No, I I mean I I know I've seen Herbie rides again, and I've seen. I, I think I've seen Monte Carlo. I know I've seen Herbie Goes Banana, Bananas, and I have not been able to stomach through Herbie Fully Loaded. I've watched yeah. maybe about 10 minutes of it. So I saw all of them, and they sort of did go down a bit in quality with each, yeah, with each I don't, sequence. I, so. I probably have watched Monte Carlo before, but it's not... I, I definitely I, I enjoy Herbie Rides again, and Herbie Goes Bananas is, is a little... It is a little out there, and Fully mm-hmm. Load is just garbage. And as for the the rest of you know the TV movie and such, I don't believe I've I've watched them. I think I, I watched a TV movie because yeah. I remember the Dean Jones cameo, and I just thought, eh, you know, it's it, they could have done better. Yeah. So. Okay, but yeah, definitely, I think Love Bugs for the whole family. You'll enjoy that. Yeah. So. Our next film of the evening also has a car theme, as Detroit is seen as the shining beacon of innovation in Walt Disney's 1967 lavish musical, The Happiest Millionaire. Now, this film is based on a play, which is based on a biography. The Happiest Millionaire first opened at the Lyceum Theater in New York on November 20th, 1956, starring Walter Pidgeon and Martin Ash. Kyle Crichton and Cordelia Drexel Biddle's play was based on Miss Biddle's novel, My Philadelphia Father, that was published in 1955. The New York Times called the production decent and amusing and Pigeon wonderful. The production ran for 271 performances and closed on July 13, 1957. I know decent and amusing. Th- th- that doesn't seem like a rave review to me. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, Walt Disney acquired the rights to the play in the early 1960s, but he had no intent of making it into a musical at first. After noting the collective box office success of Walt Disney's Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady, and The Sound of Music, the film's original producer. Producer Bill Walsh decided to make the film into a musical. Afterwards, Walt reassigned him to Blackbeard's Ghost and replaced him with Bill Anderson. H. A. Carruthers was assigned to write the screenplay, having previously worked on Miracle of the White Stallions and The Meal and the Detectives, and and he would work with the Sherman Brothers to transform the material into a musical. So rather than being a fantasy musical like Mary Poppins, The Happiest Millionaire would be a musical based on a true life story. Norman Toker was assigned as director, and he was one of Walt's go-to directors, having worked on Big Red and A Tiger Walks, and he had written and directed for television shows, such as episodes of The Bob Cummings Show, Leave it to Beaver, and The Donna Reed Show. The husband and wife team of Mark Bruot, and I'm not sure if that's how you say his name, and Dee Dee Wood choreographed the dance numbers. They had previously choreographed Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. 
So the story begins in the autumn of 1916 and follows an Irish immigrant named John Lawless. And he's played by Tommy Steele as he applies for a butler position with eccentric Philadelphia millionaire Anthony Biddle, played by Fred McMurray. Even though the family is a bit strange, Lawless soon learns that he fits right in. Mr. Biddle takes a liking to him immediately. So for the rest of the film, Lawless serves as the narrator, breaking the fourth wall with the audience. Mr. Biddle busies himself with the Biddle Boxing and Bible School, which is located in his stable, with his 12 alligators in a conservatory. He is also anxious to get the United States into the war in Europe. And this, of course, is World War I. Despite the government's policy of neutrality, his wife Cordelia, played by Greer Garson, who this is her only Disney film after a very long career with MGM, um, she stands quietly by accepting his eccentricities with a sense of pride and class. Their two sons, Tony and Livingston, played by Paul Peterson and Eddie Hodges, are headed off to boarding school, never to be seen in the film again. Their daughter, Cordy, who's um, played by Leslie Ann um, Warren in her film debut, is a tomboy with a mean right hook who is educated by private tutors and has had limited contact with conventional society. She's frustrated by her apparent inability to attract suitors despite having a wardrobe full of 1950s and 60s style party dresses uh, with no one raising an eyebrow and wants to see what's beyond the Biddle mansion. Mrs. Biddle reluctantly lets Cordy go to a boarding school as well, after some prodding from both Cordy and from his aunt Mary, played by Gladys Cooper. Uh, she would, And Gladys Cooper would have fit perfectly in Downton Abbey as a character. Where And this is where Cordy's roommate teaches her how to lure men with feminine wiles, known as Bayum-pum-pum. At a social dance hosted by her aunt and uncle, Cordy meets Angier Buchanan-Duke, who's John, John Davidson, also in his film debut, and they fall in love. He tells Cordy that he is fascinated with the new automobile industry and wants to head to Detroit, Michigan, to make his fortune there instead of taking over his family's tobacco business. That winter, Cordy comes back to her parents' home and tells them that she is engaged. At first, this is difficult thinking for a difficult thing for Mr. Biddle to accept, as he does not want to give up his little girl. But after meeting Angie, as he is called, uh, and witnessing firsthand his jiu-jitsu fighting skills, Mr. Biddle takes a liking to him and accepts the engagement. Then Cordy travels with Angie to New York City to meet his mother, perfectly played by Geraldine Page. Soon the Biddles and the Dukes are making arrangements for a very grand wedding. Constant condescending comments from Angie's mother are painful for Cordy. To make matters worth their family's elaborate planning for the social event of the season, by now it's the spring of 1917, makes both Cordy and Angie feel pushed aside. The tension reaches a climax and Cordy learns that Angie has abandoned his plans for Detroit as in, and is instead taking his place in the family business following his mother's wishes. Cordy angrily calls the wedding off, thinking of Angie as a mama's boy, and Angie storms out of the house. 
Both families are instantly in a tremendous state of upheaval. Mr. Biddle sends John Lawless to look after Angie. John finds Angie in a local tavern, contemplating what he will do next. During a rousing song and dance sequence, John tries to convince Angie to go back to Cordy. However, Angie is stubborn and thinks of other ways to deal with his problems, amongst other things saying that he wants to join the Foreign Legion. Angie unwittingly starts a bar fight with a little help from John and is hauled off to jail. The next morning, Mr. Biddle comes to bail Angie out. In a bit of reverse psychology, he tells Angie he has to forget about his own dreams and accept his place in the family business. His words have the desired effect, inspiring Angie to defy his mother and elope with Cordy and go to Detroit. Cordy, however, believes her father talked Angie into it, so to prove his sincerity, amid the cheering of the cellmates, Angie throws Cordy over his shoulder and carries her out of jail, the jailhouse, to start their new life together. Now, when the film was edited due to its length, that was the ending. It ended there. The rest of the film for the roadshow um, version um, continues. So after Mr. and Mrs. Biddle returned home, a delegation of Marines arrived to inform Mr. Biddle he has been made a provisional captain in the Marine Corps, and he is wanted immediately to go to Paris Island to continue training the recruits now that the United States is entering the war. Mr. Biddle accepts with delight and the hearty congratulations of his suddenly appearing Bible boxing class. Behind the final credits, a car is seen driving towards the city skyline, apparently Detroit, dominated by factories spewing smoke to blacken the sky over the city. The end. So, so Craig, have you seen the full roadshow version of The Happiest Millionaire? I don't believe I have, but I'm, I'm not positive. I've only watched The, the Happiest Millionaire once probably in the last 10 years and then i caught it one time before so um it's i don't believe it was ever the roadshow version so which one which one played the other night it was the roadshow version it was the full version well then i get to watch that one for the maybe for the first time so which i'm excited about so Mm -hmm. it's it's such a good movie it is yeah it has a lovely song by greer garson in it that that is in the roadshow version towards the end. So I have a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wanted to say it was because I know I know it's a long movie, but when I looked at the runtime on TCM uh, from my DVR recording, I was like, "Oh, that's long. That's oh, yeah, it's longer like a, than I remember. Almost 172 yeah. minutes. Yeah, so yeah, that's long. Hefty, mm-hmm. hefty. Yeah, it is. And 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 you sort of feel it." <laughs> So, yes, it's it, there's but, only so much zaniness and and but, all that you can take. But, you know, but the thing is, I found it a joyful movie. The one thing is, is I thought we'll get into the behind the scenes stuff in a moment. I thought all the screen chemistry worked so well in this. Tommy Steele was an absolute delight. I think he always has a smile on his face. I don't know how he does it. Um, but I, for me, I just felt the screen lit up when Tommy Steele was there. The chemistry was there between John Davidson and Leslie Ann Warren, which was critical to this, uh, between Fred McMurray and Greer Garson. Uh, all of it was, it just all worked. 
you know, so even though it's a long film, they got the casting right. The, the sets are amazing. You can get lost just Agree. looking at the backgrounds. Yeah. 100%. And, um, so this, you can, we're going to talk about how much this costs shortly. You see every penny of it on the screen. Yeah. yeah. Um, you never seen a costume worn twice in, in this film. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay attention to that and hold you yeah. to it if you're wrong. Except the sweaters <laughs> that say Biddle Boxing, you know, Boxing and Bible School. Okay, okay, <laughs> those are the only ones, pretty much. So, um, anyway, the Sherman brothers and Carruthers wanted Rex Harrison to portray Anthony Drexel Biddle, and Harrison wanted the part. But Walt Disney was against the idea, and Rex Harrison had a conflict with filming Dr. Doolittle anyway. Um, Brian Keith campaigned for the part when the film was planned to be a non-musical comedy, but he was not considered when the film became a musical. Uh, Burt Lancaster was also considered for the part, but Walt chose Fred McMurray for the role. And Carruthers believes Walt chose Fred McMurray over Rex Harrison. It was because Walt identified like crazy with Biddle and the whole thing of Biddle giving up the daughter and caring about his family. Walt could not see Harrison playing himself. He saw himself being played by Fred McMurray. And ultimately, you know, it, it would be interesting to see Rex Harrison in in that role, but I think I think things worked out the way they were supposed to mm-hmm. with this one. Well, it's funny because Fred McMurray has that um, Rex Harrison talk singing thing down really well. In fact, I thought of Rex Harrison in some of the beginning scenes of Fred McMurray his first scene where he's bit by the alligator that's that Rex Harrison yeah. could have done that song yeah oh yeah, uh, yeah because it, most of yeah. it most of it was a talk singy thing yeah. the Rex Harrison was made famous yeah and you know. I I know you know that people are very mixed on Dr. Doolittle I I enjoy Dr. Doolittle oh I do so. too but I, I know it's not everyone's favorite, but I, I think both movies ended up fine with it. Not that Rex Harrison wouldn't have been able to still make Doctor Doolittle, but you know, you never know with these things, with these situations. Mm-hmm. He might have had to drop out of one for the other. If if Walt would have been yeah. behind him being, being in Happiest Millionaire, he might have had to drop out, and then who knows what would have happened with the other movie, and who knows if that would have even worked. So yeah, it's messy. Now, Greer Garson was Carruthers' first choice to play Mrs. Biddle, but not Walt's. Walt felt that Greer was too grand. She got the role after the studio offered Geraldine Page the role of the caddy Mrs. Duke, and she turned it down because the role was too small. Walt then suggested hiring Garson for the role of Mrs. Duke, and she accepted. Then, And she was excited about being Mrs. Biddle, but she accepted the role of Mrs. Duke. Then Geraldine Page changed her mind and accepted the role of Mrs. Duke. So trying to keep everyone happy, the studio offered Garson the role of Mrs. Biddle and Page the role of Mrs. Duke. And I, I think that worked out perfectly in the film. 
Now, after seeing British pop star Tommy Steele in the Broadway musical Half a Sixpence, Carruthers wanted to cast him as the Irish butler John Lawless. And Carruthers later said, in one way it was wonderful, in one way it was a mistake. Steele was hired late in the process when the film was in pre-production, and Steele would only take the role if he had three songs and major participation in the script. So they had to add songs and dialogue into the script for in order to have Steele in the film. So one film reviewer would later quip that the film should have been titled The Happiest Millionaire's Butler. <laughs> so, um, Leslie Ann Warren makes her feature film debut as the Biddle's love-struck daughter, Cordy, and her love interest, John Davidson, also makes his film debut here as, as Angie Duke. Walt was planning to make them the next Annette Tommy Kirk style couple. And of course the the lovable Hermione Badley appears in her final on screen Disney role as the Biddles cook and maid. She made a career of being a maid, you know, in Disney films. So not a bad way to have a career though. Yeah, yeah. But she was a, a in her younger days, you know, in the in like the thirties and forties, she was quite the ingenue. So um, she was quite lovely. Hoping for another success like Mary Poppins, the studio had a huge budget. Okay, here's what I was getting into about the costumes. Over 3,000 complete outfits valued at $250,000 were made for the production, with 250 costumes just for the major characters. And an entire replica of the Biddle's Philadelphia mansion was built and filled with more than $450,000 worth of furnishings and antiques. Carruthers recalled that it was a very happy and professional set, despite every leading cast member felt their roles were too small. and But no one brought any negativism to the set. He said that Greer Garson gave everything she had to every moment of the film. One day during a break, he saw her walking up and down the grand staircase over and over again. When he asked her what she was doing, she explained that she had a scene coming up in which she entered by coming down a staircase. And she explained, I live in this house. I've lived here for many, many years. I would not have to look down when I come down the staircase. I would know where all the steps are. So I, I love that. What a wonderful actress. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Since this was a musical, all the actors were expected to do their own song and dance numbers, and some had never sang before. Fred McMurray sprained his ankle during the I'll Always Be Irish dance sequence. In what was a cinematic first, Tommy Steele had to dance with a 200-pound alligator named George. Um, George's previous acting experience had been in a Tarzan film. Steele said, to dance with an alligator, you've got to be one of two things, out of work or out of your mind. (laughs) Now, Walt had originally planned to use an audio animatronic alligator for the dance scene, but it didn't look realistic enough on screen. Although, keep a sharp eye out, there is one shot of an audio animatronic alligator in the film. See if you can catch it. So Steele had to sing and dance his duet with a live alligator that kept snapping at him throughout the sequence. And when you see that scene, he's he's dragging it by the tail. He's hopping over it 
over and over again and singing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an amazing number. Fortunately, Steele was not injured. Now, during her scenes handling alligators, Greer Garson said she just pretended she was holding a $400 handbag from iMagnons, making the scene great fun. <laughs> and iMagnons was a very exclusive shop at the time. So it was a department store. We had a, there was a, a large one um, in downtown San Francisco. Never heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was very nice. When my mother was a fashion model, she um, she modeled for the Magnet stores. Hmm. Yeah. Now, most of the actors did a credible job singing, with one exception. It is standard for the musical numbers to be pre-recorded, and the actors lip-sync to the recordings whilst filming the musical numbers. However, during the There Are Those musical sequence between Geraldine Page and Gladys Cooper, who played Aunt Mary, Miss Cooper was unable to lip-sync. In desperation, Norman Tokar attempted to record the singing when filming the scene with the actresses in full costume and a live orchestra on the set. Seemed to work when you see the the scene. Yeah, it, it's tough though. So yeah, I mean, yeah, live singing. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, the Sherman Brothers wrote 13 original songs for the film, Fortuosity, What's Wrong With That, Watch Your Footwork, Valentine Candy, Strengthen the Dwelling, I'll Always Be Irish, By Yum Pum Pum, Are We Dancing, Detroit, I Believe in This Country, There Are Those, Let's Have a Drink on It, and It Won't Be Long Till Christmas or Let Them Go, and that's the ro- in the roadshow version only. So, Now, the song Detroit contains the lyric, F-O-B Detroit. FOB meaning free on board. Well, according to the Sherman brothers, Walt Disney was walking down the hall of the studio animation building and overheard them singing the song. Walt, misinterpreting the phrase as SOB, immediately went into their office and scolded them for using such offensive language in a Disney movie. The the Shermans explained Walt's misinterpretation and they all had a good laugh about it. Yeah, I mean, it's like the Sherman Brothers to have foul language in their songs, so it makes sense. Yeah, now the opening song, Fortuosity, was not the number originally planned to introduce the film. The song off Rittenhouse Square, written by the Sherman Brothers, was the planned opener, and it told the story of Philadelphia at the time, and it took place on a trolley with all the domestics going off to work in the various great mansions on Rittenhouse Square, and the domestics all sang about who they worked for, and they were sort of very snobby about it. And Walt thought it was too Broadway for the film. And if you get the, um, and it's on Apple um, Music, the 2002 soundtrack, you can hear um, the, the Sherman Brothers, they're singing the song um, off Rittenhouse Square on it, on the piano. So, um, the, oh, and look for the Sherman Brothers making a cameo appearance in the film. Look closely at the engagement party scene, and you'll see them as musicians, each of them playing instruments. Yeah, I remember that part. Yeah. Yeah. Although the film was released a year after Walt Disney's passing, it was filmed when he was alive, and Walt saw a rough cut of the film. 
Walt envisioned an extensive rollout of the film with premieres around the country, hosted by himself and featuring the film's lead actors. These premieres would have benefited Cal Arts, and Walt's passing prevented these rollouts from being fully realized. But some premieres were held to raise funds for Cal Arts. And when on the day Walt passed, um, Follow Me Boys was released to the theaters, and it had a filmed introduction by Walt Disney in which he instead of talking about Follow Me Boys, he talked about how he was too busy to be there for the premiere of Follow Me Boys because he was involved in the filming of The Happiest Millionaire and actually went into some detail about the film The Happiest Millionaire. Now, The Happiest Millionaire premiered on June 23rd, 1967 in Hollywood, and this was on a reserved seat basis. This was the full 172-minute cut of the film, which included an overture, intermission, and exit music. Now, after having a hard time booking theaters for such a long film, the studio was able to get Radio City Music Hall in New York City to add it to their holiday bill on November 30th. But they mandated that the film be shortened to 159 minutes so they could also run a holiday stage show before the film. So this version lost the song, It Won't Be Lost Till Christmas. And then after mixed critical reviews, the studio decided to scrap plans for a special roadshow released, and they released a further edited version to theaters at 144 minutes. And during this run, they decided to release an even shorter cut that ran 118 minutes. Unfortunately, The Happiest Millionaire was a critical and box office disappointment, grossing $5 million, which would be fine for most live-action Disney films of the 60s, but this one cost $5 million to make. Possibly due to its length, The Happiest Millionaire is one of the few films from this era never to air on any of Disney's television series. It remained in the Disney vault until 1984 when the Disney Channel was able to restore the original cut, except for a few lost lines of dialogue before the It Won't Be, it won't be Lost Till Christmas scene. And that same year, Disney released the film on VHS. At the Philadelphia premiere of the film, the real Biddle family took the stage. Cordelia Drexel Biddle herself said, I think The Happiest Millionaire is just divine. Dear wonderful Walt Disney has done such a marvelous job of bringing the old Philadelphia back to life. Greer Garson is great. She has really captured Mother's spirit. I was so pleased that she took the role. The film had a happier ending for the Biddles than did real life. Cordelia separated from her husband, Angier Duke, just a few years after their marriage, and they ultimately divorced. The Happiest Millionaire does have a legacy. The songs Let's Have a Drink on It and Fortuosity are used in the Main Street USA loops at Disney Parks. The Fortuosity Shop replaced the New Century Timepieces time Shop on Disneyland's Main Street USA in 2008. So, Craig, I'll be interested in um, hearing your thoughts about this film when you watch the Roadshow version. Yeah, no, I definitely, I'm excited to have a, a, an updated view on this film because I've always liked it, you know, for me, it's in terms of kind of the... It, 
Disney musicals. I, I want to say that, like you know, you a lot of times your mind jumps straight to to Mary Poppins as being the best, and I agree with that. And then very quick after that, a lot of times, you know, you go straight to bed knobs and broomsticks. But for me, that that is also the case. But then Happiest Millionaire is like right there behind it, and mm-hmm. so it's three. If you're recommending, you know. Disney movie musicals. I, I think those are three solid choices. And Happiest Millionaire, hopefully, it gets a lot of eyes on it because it, it deserves it. And then you won't be able to walk down Main Street without hearing Fortuosity playing. And it feels like it's always playing. <laughs> I know, I know. But I love it. That's one of the reasons I like the Main yeah. Street loop. Me too. Yeah. Well, in our next episode, we'll talk about the remaining winter themed films in lineup but now it's time to see if there are any film references in this week in disney history all right craig well you know what we we were going to jump right in and we are going to have a film reference in this week in disney history starting with september 22nd The first cartoon short in which Minnie appears without Mickey is released on September 22, 1944. In this short, Minnie practices first aid on Pluto, much to Figaro's delight and amusement. What is the name of this cartoon short? I, I, I know of the short, but I don't know its name. I gave you a clue in the description. It's First Aiders. Well, that's very on the nose. So yeah, and this was it was one of it sort of was one of the propaganda films too. Uh, and Mickey, a uh, mini, I should say, um, you know, she was portrayed as a nurse throughout World War Two in in the Disney propaganda films, and this was um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sort of her, her start in that. So. Okay, on September 23rd, a new attraction officially opens at the Disney MGM Studio on September 23rd, 2001. It will be officially dedicated October 1st for the start of Walt Disney World's 100 Years of Magic celebration. What is the name of this attraction? I'm given the uh, Walt Disney, uh, the 100 Years of Magic, I'm going to say it was probably Walt Disney One Man's Dream. You are right. And, of course, this shows memorabilia about Walt Disney's career and heritage. And it's a meet and greet. It's <laughs> a so, character meet and greet on occasion. So, anyway, yes. And I, it's, I, it is my disappointment that we don't have something similar to this at Disneyland. Yeah, and, where, you where know, we, it's, and it's our disappointment on, on this coast that it still isn't the, the original the original one man's dream that it was with you know the the office and such but of course that was repurposed for much better things so yes. uh, you, you gotta curb curb the bitterness sometimes mm-hmm. yes and of course that office was it was uh, set up at disneyland for a long time yep, in the yep, opera house yep. lobby so, so for September 24th, what was the name of the parade that debuted at Epcot as part of the 100 Years of Magic celebration on September 24th, 2001? The parade that started in Epcot in 2001. Um, oh, it would have been the the follow-up to Tapestry of Nations. Um, mm-hmm. 
dreams dreams that's right yeah. that's right the it's, tapestry of dreams <laughs> which was just a slightly shorter version of the popular tapestry of nations parade from the previous year's millennium celebration tapestry of dreams celebrated children dreams and the legacy of walt disney i like that parade both parades it, it, i saw them both yeah i i don't think i saw nations but or sorry no i saw nations i didn't see dreams but you know i'd be I am one of those things where I kicked myself years later. I didn't buy the soundtrack for the... I have it. Well, I I didn't buy it when it was Tapestry of Nations is the main one on there, and then all the rest of the the songs. And then when they ended 2000 and ended that celebration and changed it over to Tapestry of Dreams, all they did with the soundtrack was changed it from Nations to Tapestry of Dreams. And Mm -hmm. so I ended up buying that version... And it's like, I hate the dream, dream, dream that keeps repeating over and over. (laughs) Yeah. So then eventually I just, you know, thanks to the internet back then, I I downloaded (laughs) the copy of Tapestry of Nations and I just switched out the songs. And so in the main album I have, I have, I have the correct version that I want. You're very talented. I, you know how to do all that. I don't. Let's say I'm more stubborn than stubborn than talented. <laughs> so, yeah. okay. September 25th on September 25th, 1959, ABC Television airs the last episode of a popular children's television series. Later that evening, Walt Disney Presents airs the episode "Tomorrow the Moon." What is the name of the series that ended? I'm literally taking a wild shot on this, and I'm just going to say Mickey Mouse Club. You are absolutely right. There was a Disney had a dispute with ABC TV, and all of their shows were ending their runs. I just all within like a week of each other. <laughs> it, it was more as a, a tribute to you saying Mickey Mouse Club and oh, just hoping okay. that you would choose something related to Mickey Mouse Club. Yes, yes. <laughs> So, um, anyway, September 26th, Walt Disney phoned artist Herb Ryman at his home on Saturday, September 26th, 1953, to see if he would like to work on a project for him. What was the project? Ah, um, I, with 1953, wouldn't that have been one of the first sketches for Disneyland? Exactly. Walt called to ask Herb Ryman if he would draw some overall concept sketches of a new theme park. Walt's brother Roy is to leave for New York on Monday to meet with possible investors. Although Ryman is not an employee of Walt's at this time, he agrees to meet Walt at the studio. When he arrives at the Disney lot, Walt is anxiously waiting out front. The work Walt and Herb will do over together over the upcoming Lost Weekend will help define the look of Disneyland. Ryman, of course, is a master artist and teacher, and he would later become an Imagineer. You have a career spanning more than 50 years as a production designer, art director, and illustrator at many of the top Hollywood studios of the time. I I just so admire his work. Oh, yeah. It's just beyond gorgeous. I have a print of Sleeping Beauty Castle above my desk that I look at with the Disneyland sign, the classic Disneyland sign right above it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Okay, September 27th. Walt Disney's ninth animated feature film is released through RKO Pictures on September 27th, 1947. What is the title of the film, Craig? September... What was the date again on that? September 27th, 1947. Oh, it would have been fun and fancy free. We've already gone through this. (laughs) We have. We have. I just just wanted to make sure you were listening. I had to toss that in there when I saw it come up. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. September 28th. The surround sound system to be used in theaters for Fantasia is first tested on September 28th, 1938. What is the name of this system? I'm probably going to screw it up, but wasn't it Fantasia Sound? You're very close. It was Fantasound. Okay. Yeah. 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 And it is an early stereophonic sound process developed by sound engineer William E. Garrity and sound mixer John N.A. Hawkins. Now, Garrity has taken separate recordings of each orchestra section and mixed them to produce four distinct audio tracks, which are then recorded as optical tracks on a separate reel of film. The four tracks will drive some 54 different speakers positioned around the theaters showing Fantasia. Fantasound will lead to the development of the 5.1 surround format that um, we know of today. So... Definitely a pioneer. You did really well. Yeah, you chose a lot of easy ones this week. So thank you. Well, they're easy when you know them. (laughs) That is very true. Yes. Next time, we will... I'll look forward to going through the history of the remainder of the lineup of Disney Treasures... But until then, I did use a few references for this episode. Um, books I used, the Disney films by Leonard Malton, ironically enough, since he hosted <laughs> host that series. Uh, Walt Disney in live action, the Disney Studios live action features of the 1950s and 60s by John G. West. There are several websites that I found helpful, the Disney films, the Disney wiki, themouseforless.com, Silver Scene, a blog for classic film lovers, Turner Classic Movies, and D23. And Craig will have links to all of those in our show notes so craig until next time how can our listeners connect with you as always you can find me on the shows on the dis unplugged podcast network and then on social media on facebook twitter and instagram at teleclaster what about you michael well, on Twitter, you can find me at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. You can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com or at the link that Craig always has in our show notes and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. Thank you for making us a part of your day and remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man Walt Disney and his brother Roy. (laughs) 